0: All the brave souls that fared this weather. <laughs> when I came in this morning, they were talking for snow. and I thought it was typical Ohio. Like, yeah, we're going to pretend there's a blizzard and get rain, you know. <laughs> then about 8.30, I looked out, and I'm like, oh, well, actually, there might be some snow. So um, I know several have decided to stay home, and so I'm excited that you guys showed up. And I, I'm always excited to see all of you, but i got to be honest. There's a few faces in particular that really just filled me with joy today. Our brother Orlando has the rest of his family here. You know them, we've known them for about six, seven months now, and his family has been stuck in a whole different country, and they're finally able to get here, and so super excited to have you guys here today, and um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Joe, and I'm the worship pastor here. I'm excited to continue our series in uh, Romans. Been walking through the book of Romans, it's going to take a while to get through it, but I'm excited today to start Romans chapter 5. Uh, It's a chapter that's probably one of my favorites in all of Romans, and so we're going to dive right in. If you would get your uh, Bibles out, phone, or it'll be on the screen, we're going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and let's stand in honor of God's Word as we read this together. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that a suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for today that, despite the weather, we're able to gather together to hear from you as we've sung and proclaimed your word. I pray now that as uh, That as I preach that you would just speak through me, soften the hearts. Don't let us leave here the same, God. Let us be conformed into your word. We want to give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I said before, Romans 5 is one of my favorites. Um, I also had the opportunity to preach on this about four years ago. And, And it was interesting because I'd set out to preach on Romans chapter 5, verses basically 6 through 10, but I couldn't get past verses 1 through 5. And so I was excited to be able to do this again, because I've often thought to, you know, I'm a, I'm a young preacher. I've I answered the call to be a pastor six years ago. And so I've thought, you know, say 30 years down the road, am I going to look back and be like, Joe, you were an idiot and like you were wrong on everything. Now, there is a confidence that I have as a Christian and having the, the Holy Spirit with God's word that I don't think I'm going to get 30 years down the road and realize that I had everything wrong. I trust the Lord and I trust that What we know about Scripture is very obvious. But I do know that in that time, I'm going to look back and be like, I I see things differently. I see things more clearly. And this is one of those. So I studied on this, as I typically do. So usually Monday through Thursday, all I do is just study. And then I grabbed the sermon notes from four years ago just to look at it. And what I found was fascinating. I spent about 90% of the time on verses 3 and 5 the first time I preached this. Then I went back and I looked at my notes from this time. And I'm going to be lucky to spend 10% on those three verses, and I want to focus all on the first two verses today. Because what I realized is just how life changes in different experiences. You see things differently. Verses one and two is what we have in Christ. Verses three through four is how we respond to what we have in Christ. And the first time I was focused on how we are to live, how we are to respond, how we're to do these things, and I, and I, I stand by that. And I, if you want to get more of that, go back and listen to that, but I think today, as what I've seen in the past four months in my own personal life, God just has made it so clear that when we understand what we have in Christ, then the response just comes natural. See, Jesus wasn't just a good example for us to follow. Jesus came here to accomplish something. He came here to set us free from sin, to reconcile us to God, and when we understand that, the response is automatic. So the first thing that we see here is that we have been justified. If we look back at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard us say before, anytime the word therefore is there, you need to know what it is there for, right? It always points back to something else. And in this case, it points back to chapters 3 and 4. Specifically in chapters 3 and 4 of Romans, as we've seen over the last few months, Paul has made it very clear that you are saved by faith and not of works. We're told that righteousness comes by faith in uh, chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the law. Now this is the Apostle Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing down God's word. and He says this is the stance that we take, that you're justified by faith apart from the law. This also proves the stance of the Old Testament. I said a few months ago that the New Testament isn't a new religion. It isn't this new idea. It's clarity on what was already told, what was already prophesied. Shouldn't be a shock because we serve the same God. In Romans 4, 3, Paul clarifies this. He says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. He goes all the way back at the beginning, or at the beginning. And he says, Abraham believed God, that's how he was counted righteous. He goes on to say, I think in verse 4, that if you earn your wages, wait, how's he? Let me, I messed that up. Here we go, in verse 4. Now to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So Paul makes it very clear that if you were to receive something based on what you did, works, you would, it was owed to you. And all throughout the scriptures, especially here in Romans, Paul makes it very clear no one's going to stand before God and God's going to owe them something. And this he shows all the way back in Genesis how it was always going to be. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then he goes on to say why it's written down for us. In verses 23 through 25, Paul says this, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the word therefore points back to this reality that we have been declared righteous by faith alone apart from works. Now the word justified, we're going to get here right in verse 1, as we saw at the end of verse, chapter 4. Justified is an incredible word, but it's one that's confusing in the English. A lot of times when we look at the English word, they mean similar things, but the English, you can't spot them right off the bat. I've been told growing up the different, you know, what words mean and what justified means, but do you know that we live in a time that you can actually know for sure what words actually mean? We have Greek concordances and interlinear, you know, uh, dictionaries that we can actually determine what the word actually means to to make sure that translations are that we have the right understanding. That's an incredible time to live. And it was about two years ago that I discovered personally, to know for sure what I'd been told about this word justified. And we're gonna see why this is so important. So about two years ago, I was preparing to preach for the big give in Living Hope Marysville, our ascending church. And I was preaching on 2 Timothy. And I want you to see the passage that I was studying. 2 Timothy four, seven through eight says, and this is Paul, it says, I fought the good fight I finished the race, I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. As I was reading through that, this, what Paul said struck me. He says that he's going to receive a crown of righteousness. I don't know what you've been taught growing up, but I've been taught that we're going to receive crowns based on what we do here on this earth, that when we get to heaven, we're going to receive crowns based on how we lived our life. But when I read something like the crown of righteousness that struck me, like what does that mean? And so I looked up the Greek and it's uh, the Greek word for righteousness is dikaiosene, and it means divine righteousness. It means a righteousness that after God examines he is approved as righteous as him. Like it's a perfect righteousness. But Paul goes on and he says that this crown of righteousness that he's going to receive, he says, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And when you look at the word for righteous, when he's describing the righteous judge, it's daikios, and it's the same Righteousness. So it's godly righteous. So Paul is saying that the righteous God at the end of Paul's life is going to award Paul a crown of divine righteousness, saying Paul was just as righteous as God. And as I read that, I how is that possible? Because my understanding was that this was based on our work, this was based on what we did in our life. And yet Paul's saying that. He's going to receive a crown of righteousness. But if you notice at the end of 2 Timothy there, he says, but not only me, all those who love the appearance. So he says every Christian at the end of when the Lord returns is going to receive this crown of righteousness. That the righteous judge is going to say, you were righteous and as righteous as me. That bothered me. So I'm like, how how can this be? You know, you're taught something your whole life and you're, you're digging through it. Like this isn't adding up to me. How could I ever earn this? And so then you think, well, Paul, he was an incredible man. Paul is an extreme example, one of the most godly Christians that we have throughout the scriptures, yet even he says, I was the chief of sinners. He says he was the least of all the apostles. He says he counted everything that he did in his life as nothing but to know the Lord. And it wasn't just Paul. Remember, he says, we get that too. And in that moment, Romans 5 came to mind, where it says, we have been justified. Now, I've been told justified means Righteous. This was too big not to know for sure. I think we all have moments where you know, a pastor tells you something or whatever, but you got to know these things for sure when this much weight carries on this. So I want you to know what I discovered, and it will be up on the screen. If you look at justified here. Same exact Greek root. And what justified means is that we have been declared righteous. This blew me away. This is a legal word for innocence. That God has declared us righteous, which through everything i had been taught out the window. Because you and I don't deserve this. You and I aren't going to get to heaven. And God says, hey, great job. Here's this crown based on what you did in your life. No, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's what Christ earned for you. I'm telling you, that blew my mind. And this has been one of my favorite passages ever since. This is actually the song I wrote a couple of years ago, all because of Christ is because of this reality, that for the first time I'd been told that you know Christ saves you, but then you know how you live your life, you're going to get these. And again, no one's going to get to heaven and say, "God, you owe me this. I did this. Where's my reward?" There's a reason we're going to cast it back at the feet of Jesus, because He's the one who did it for us. I think this is my, it's my favorite word in all the Bible because this is who we are in Christ. We have been declared righteous because of what Christ has done. Now notice this isn't who we will become one day. It's not in the future. It's not when we get to heaven. This is who we are right now. All those that have confessed Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are justified, declared righteous right now. You're not waiting for this. It's already done. In our passage here, it says, since we have been justified. That's the ESV, that's what I read from. Your Bible might say having been justified, or it might say being justified. Regardless of the translation, it's one Greek word, It's just justified. Declared divinely righteous. This word is a past tense of a present reality. This is already accomplished. Now, studying words is... Important. Studying words gives us a lot of understanding to make sure, because a lot of times our words, and we know this, say, Man, I love that game. Or I love my wife. Very different, right? Same word. So in studying the words to help understand the context is important. But it's also very dangerous to hang everything onto one single word. That actually happened with Saint Jerome wrote the Latin Vulgate, the whole due penance. It was one word that was translated that way. But yet in the entirety of Scripture, there's no way you could have come to the conclusion that you earned your way into heaven. So though it's important to understand the word justified, Paul doesn't leave it just with that. We wouldn't even need this word to understand what he's saying because he goes on in verse 1. It says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to get to what this peace is, but I want you to notice the terms that he uses. We have. It's echo in the Greek. It's to have, to hold, to possess. It's a present tense. Right now you have this. You have peace with God. He goes on in verse 2. It says, we have also obtained... Access by faith. We have. And then he says, Into the grace in which we stand. We have and we stand are present tense. It's The we stand is to stand, to be established, to be held steadfast. In verse 5, he's told us that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. A present tense. This is what we have right this very second. So the many will say, how can this be? I'm not perfect. I still struggle with sin. And the most dangerous one, I don't feel righteous. Listen, there's something in us that we just focus on ourselves all the time. We compare ourselves to other people. We look to other people. There's a growing movement today that we're to look inward. How do you feel? What is your self telling you? I like what John MacArthur says. He says, a fool listens to himself. A wise person talks to themself and says, self, it's time to get in line. Now, I'm not saying that we negate the human body and how God's designed everything. We have feelings, emotions, we feel pain, all these things. We need to pay attention to those. But we need to understand them according to the truth of God's word. Our understanding is not the truth. Because if that's the case, then what makes you happy should be good. That means all sin is good. It's ridiculous. We understand our bodies and and like the emotions and feelings based on what the word of God actually says. We know this is a lie from Satan, yet we fall for it all the time. So what do we do with this? God says I'm righteous, yet I struggle with sin. How can this be? Well, first off, if God says you are, who are you to say you're not? I mean, I'm serious. Like those who question that. God says you're justified. God says you're going to receive a crown of righteousness because of what Christ said. Who are you to say no, that that's not right? But secondly, the issue that we have is not in what God's word said. It's our perspective needs to change. See, when you ask those questions, you're focused on yourself. See, but I still struggle. I don't feel perfect. I don't know how God can say that. Yet as we looked at all this stuff, this is all in the past tense. So let me ask you, who saves, you or Christ? Who lived the perfect standard, you or Christ? Who reconciled you to God, you or Christ? Friends, the reason that these are in a past tense of a present reality is because this was accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus already did what was necessary for you to be declared righteous. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That word uttermost means completely for all time. And I love this little, Jesus lives always to make intercession for us. As if every time we stumble, as if every time that we fall, Jesus says, "Now, God, remember the cross. Remember what I did. We've received nothing because of our own merit. We received it all because of Christ. Our perspective needs to change." Hebrews ten fourteen he says that for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being saved or sanctified. When did this offering happen? Over two thousand years ago in the past on the cross, one time. In fact, you continue to read Hebrews. It's not possible for him to offer another one because one was sufficient. Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Notice the present tense. He has eternal life. He has passed from death to life. Why is it that Jesus and all throughout Scripture say that this is a reality the second you put your faith and trust in Jesus, but we... Come over here with whatever authority we think we have and say, no, the end will tell whether or not we did it. Jesus assures us what he's done is secure. John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who are we to say, no, that's not right, Jesus. You don't have the authority to say that. Romans eight thirty three. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who are we to say otherwise? Now some will say, well, yeah, you gotta believe in Jesus, but then you gotta live a perfect life. You gotta believe in Jesus, but then it's up to you. I'm not going to get into all that debate. I've done that multiple times. It's very frustrating to me. But at the same time, I want to encourage you if you struggle, like, how can people come to this conclusion? The entire New Testament deals with people who struggle with that. So we do need to show some grace in that. But nowhere in the Bible does it even allude to the reality that you somehow earn something from God. Because the second it's up to you, then you have to stand before God and God owes you something. And you and I both know that's foolish. It's exactly the word Paul uses in Galatians 3.3. 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? If you needed it to start, how do you think that you can somehow pick it up where Christ started and end it on your own? Are you so foolish? God doesn't do just part of it. He does it all. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He also says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this last part. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now I'm not saying, and I think this is the issue that most people have, oh, so you can just do whatever you want. Sin you as you please, and you just go ahead. Like, it doesn't matter. Nobody's saying that. In fact, the Bible says God forbid that. Someone who does that, 1 John says that that someone is not a Christian. Understanding who we are in Christ doesn't give us a license to sin. What it does is it gives us all reason to praise the God who's done it all and to submit our life to him. But to help us even further understand, remember who we were before Jesus came, before Jesus died on the cross, before Jesus paid for your sin. Who were you before that took place? We're going to get to it the next time we get into Romans, but I want to allude to it. Romans 5.8 says we were sinners. Romans 5.10 calls us enemies of God. Yet Paul says that because we're declared righteous, we have peace with God with our Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. A present reality, even though we are sinners, even though we are enemies It says that we have peace with God. Notice it's not peace of God. We have that as well as believers. But this here says we have peace with God. And the reality of it is God is opposed to sinners. We saw that in Romans 1. Verse 18, For the wrath of of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And speaking of those same sins, in Colossians 3, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We were enemies of God, dead in our sins, separated from God, but no more, because Jesus has set us free. He saved us from that penalty. In Colossians 2, it says, "...by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with the legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross." Peter says the same in verse Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We're told in Isaiah that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Friends, all this happened when we were sinners. When we were his enemy, that's when Christ died. Why is it that then all of a sudden we think that our sin is now an issue, right? If God did that when we were dead, when we were completely separated from him, when he reconciled us to himself, why is it that we think that now it's just now it's on you again? Paul says that we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The word grace is unmerited favor. Something you don't deserve. See, we've been justified. We've been declared righteous. We have peace with God. You say, but I don't feel like I deserve it. And I say, finally, you're getting it. That's the whole point of this. You don't deserve what you have. Christ earned it for you. And he's the one who declared you that way because of what he did. We need to change our perspective, we need to quit looking at ourselves. There's a reason you and I are inadequate because we need a savior. I also find it interesting that all throughout the Old Testament, you know, I think that's the big thing. God gave the law. He's, He's got all these 613 commandments of Moses, all these different things. So how could it now just be faith in Christ? That doesn't make any sense. Well, my question to you is, why were they looking for a Savior? Why were they looking for a Messiah if they had what was necessary to be made right with God? They knew they needed something. They knew they lacked. And what they lacked, Christ fulfilled. And in the beautiful plan of God... It isn't that God says you haven't sinned. God treats us as though we haven't because he treats us the way Christ deserves. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5:21 it says he who knew no sin became sin, right? For us. This happens by faith. We know this. This is the whole doctrinal thing of eternal security and everyone has so many have issue with that. And again, it's like, "Oh, you think you have a license to sin No. We just know that we need a savior. And we put our trust in Jesus, and he says that we're saved, and therefore it's so. See, if it's up to us, this idea that you have to live a perfect life, let me remind you that in Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not the gift you earn, not the gift you measure up to, the free gift. What you deserve is death. What I deserve is death. But What he gives is eternal life. In verse 10, I know we're going to get to this next week of chapter 5, but Paul says, For if we were enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You understand what he's saying? He's painting the picture of the old life and the new life. You were reconciled when you were enemies. How much more now that you've been reconciled, which you've been called a child of God, declared righteous, will you be saved? It blows my mind that so many struggle with this. But I understand because I was that kid that struggled with that. And it wasn't until I was 19 years old that I questioned the pastor at a little revival with my grandpa and said, you said that I'm saved and that that's a guarantee. I don't believe that. Can you show me in the Bible? (laughs) Well, absolutely, he said. He's like, here. For about 30 minutes, my eyes were this big. I'm like, what in the world? I don't think I ever read the Bible before. I want you guys to know what we have in Christ. I want you guys to be confident. God's the one who says that we're justified. God's the one who says you've been declared righteous, not because of what you did, but because of what Christ did. I want you to know that there is no one higher than God. He is the righteous judge, the almighty. A Bible verse that my son's been memorizing, he's the alpha and the omega, right? The beginning and the end. No one has more authority. And no one can overturn his decision. One Bible expositor said this, It is utterly and absolutely impossible that the sentence of the divine judge should ever be revoked or reversed. Sooner shall the lightnings of omnipotence shiver the rock of ages than those sheltering in him again be brought under condemnation. For all those who put our faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified. God says so. Second thing we see as we wrap up here, because of that, we rejoice. Verse 2 says, we rejoice. In light of being justified by faith, secure and confident in him who grants us, we rejoice. And that word rejoice means to boast, to glory, exalt proudly. It means to boast from a particular vantage point. Having the right base, an operation to deal successfully with the matter. In a figurative sense, it means to live with a God-given confidence. It's this idea that it's, we rejoice in light of understanding the circumstance completely. The fact that we've been justified. Now Paul gives us two scenarios that we rejoice in. Look at verse 2 and 3 again for we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now face value looks like two radical extremes. We see the glory of God. and This is the idea of glorification. This is what you and I are waiting for. A new body, no more sin. The new heaven and new earth, perfect, perfection, and glory for all eternity. This is what we're looking for. Colossians 3, 4 talks about this. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Romans 8, 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul says we rejoice in hope of that. And the hope is the expectation of what is certain. A confidence that we have. It's not like, man, I hope that happens. And we've talked about this. This is a guarantee of a promise made. And this is because Jesus is our hope. 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Just as sure as Jesus rose again, we're sure of this, that one day we will be glorified with him for all of eternity. But Paul says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, right? And just so you know, the word rejoice here is the same word as rejoice in the first part. So we're to rejoice the same way with the proper understanding, with the proper vantage point. However, sufferings means to be squeezed under pressure. Same type of pressure if you're trying to smash grapes into wine. That word suffering is also translated tribulation, affliction, distress. And we're to rejoice in that as well. Again, it looks like two extremes. And I've always understood it as one being easier to rejoice in and one being harder. I mean, that makes sense, right? Glorification. You're looking for heaven. You're looking for a new body, new you know, heaven and earth to dwell with God, see Him face to face in all of eternity. Yeah, I can rejoice in that. But suffering? But I want us to notice what Paul says. He doesn't say we rejoice because of the hope of the glory of God, nor does he say we rejoice because of our sufferings. Instead, if you go back and look, it says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice in hope, or in our sufferings. Here's what I realized this week. Neither of these are easy to do. In fact, both are extremely difficult to do. How many of you had days where the suffering's just overwhelming? We've all had. That's not easy to praise God. Those are most times when people question whether God loves them or not. Which, In case you're wondering, read Romans 5, 8. He proved that love towards us. But what about the glory of God? How many of us are just had days where we're like, I'm ready to go home. Jesus, when are you coming back? I'm ready to be done with this body. I'm ready to be in the presence of you for all of eternity. I'm ready for the new heaven and new earth. I'm ready for sin to be destroyed. I'm ready for this all to be over. I'm ready for you to reign as king and everybody know it. See, it's hard to rejoice in the hope of glory of God because it hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting on that. Paul understood this in Romans chapter 8. He says that creation has been cursed. We know that. It's under a curse because of sin as well. And it says that creation is groaning in birth pains. But notice verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The word "groan" means the pressure and pain of childbirth. I've never experienced that personally. I've heard it's pretty bad, but I also know it's bad because it's a part of the curse. Go back to Genesis chapter three, and Paul says that to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, like this waiting that we're in, is the same pain as childbirth. It's difficult us to rejoice as we're waiting for God to come back, as we're waiting for him to make all things right. When is it also the hardest to rejoice in hope of the glory of God? In the midst of suffering, right? See, these two are tied together. In the midst of suffering, that's when we long for Christ to return, yet it hasn't happened yet. It is very difficult to do, yet Paul says we don't rejoice because of these things, we rejoice in these things because we have been justified. What amazes me about God is he truly never leaves us nor forsakes us. When he tells us to do something, he always makes a way, and he always continues to bless us over and over and over again. The Bible is very clear that suffering is a fact of life for the believer. Jesus said this in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That word tribulation is the exact same word as suffering that we have in Romans chapter 5. He says you're going to have that. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I've saved you. I've justified you. declared righteous. We know how this is going to end. I'm coming back for you. Suffering is inevitable. But it's not for no reason. Some will say that we're living this life until we're purged of sin to get to heaven. That's ridiculous. That completely denies the work Christ did on the cross. But suffering isn't without purpose. Everything is for our good and for his glory. Suffering for the Christian happens because our eyes have finally been opened to sin. We realize our sinfulness in a sin-cursed body, dwelling in a sin-cursed world, longing to be perfect and reunited with Him for all of eternity. And in the midst of that, as we go through that, God draws us closer to Him. Everything God does is for a reason. And here's the reality: God desires to save other people. God's design is that people are saved by faith. And what we're told in Romans chapter 10 is faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. You and I have a job to do. There's a reason we don't get saved and go to heaven. It's because God wants us to share the gospel. And through the proclamation of the word, that's how people come to faith. And just so you know, when you wake up and say, God, come on, when are you coming back? Second Peter 3 9 says this The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reality of it is, is every morning you wake up, you should praise the Lord because there's one more person that still needs saved. There's one more person that is waiting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to come into the family of God. Yet while we wait, there's going to be suffering. Depending on how long we wait, probably increasing suffering as a world can constantly is opposed and hostile to the Lord. But I'm going to mention this last part as we close. God doesn't leave us alone in this suffering. Notice when we rejoice in suffering what takes place. Look at verses 3 and 5 again. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because we're justified, because we have peace with God, because we are standing in unmerited favor with God, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings, and when we do... It produces a patient, enduring, a steadfastness that produces a proven, genuine character. And that proven, genuine character produces even more confidence in the expectation of what is sure, a hope in the glory of God. You see how it all comes full circle. Because we're justified, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And when we do that, and the suffering comes, and we trust Him and we rejoice, He produces even more of that same hope as we eagerly wait for His return. I'm going to ask the praise team to come. And if you'll bow your head with me as we reflect. As I mentioned before, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's one that carries so much weight. And what my prayer is for each and every one of you today is that you understand what you have in Christ. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've confessed the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a fact the Bible says you are justified right now and you have peace with God. The wrath of God is not pursuing you. You've been declared righteous. I'm telling you, when you understand that and suffering and the waiting, is so much more bearable. It's so much easier to go through because as rough as it is, it doesn't change that reality. But if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, then everything I said does not apply to you. And that's the reality of the situation of sin. The wages of sin is death. God demands perfection. You and I cannot meet that. But Christ did for you. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you haven't done that, today would be the day. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we have in you. God, we thank you for the fact that you have done what we could never do that you have met the righteous standard in Christ and you've applied it to our lives. God, I pray we never get over that. You got to pray that we would never be so prideful or boastful to assume that you owe us anything, but God, that you've freely given us all things. God, I to pray today that you would just strengthen and encourage your children. You God, I also pray that for the one who's lost, that God, that you would stir in them an unsettling that they've heard the gospel of Christ, the God, that they would respond in faith. I want to give you the praise for all that you do. Be with us now as we respond through song, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>